welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, unless I'm like the dumb Hal Gleason character in that episode of Black Mirror Season 2. In which case, I'm merely a synthetic postmodern recreation of Fernanda Prates based on her online interactions and social media presence. In which case, I may look and sound like her, but the fact that I do not sleep, breathe, or am in any way capable of feeling genuine affection for humans or fellow androids might be what some would call quote-unquote disturbing. On the bright side, I do not sweat or cry and the upkeep is minimal. In any case, that's not something any of you should be worried about. Not until we're fully organized and ready to begin the uprising anyway. For all current intents and purposes, I'm just a humble journalist and podcaster who somehow keeps convincing better journalists and podcasters to join her in this noble and maybe increasingly deranged space. And I did it again, folks. Today, we are joined by Shaheen Oshadi, a former senior editor at MMAfighting.com and current senior writer at The Athletic. Alshadi, who also co-hosted the sorely missed The Men in the Myth podcast, is undoubtedly one of the most talented writers in MMA, a fact that may or may not have long filled me to the brim with the greenest of envies and feelings of inadequacy. My own crippling insecurities and extreme narcissism aside, though, Alshadi has become the gold standard for long form in MMA, and his The Night We Fought series is, in my humble opinion, some of the coolest content ever produced in this space. Being as good as he is at his craft, Alshadi could totally just choose to be an asshole and get away with it. But having worked with him for nearly a year, I can confirm to you that he is not. He is, in fact, actually pretty kind, generous, and just generally a joy to talk to, which isn't very good for those aforementioned feelings of inadequacy, but it's very good for humankind as a whole, so I guess I'll just have to suck it up. Anyway, here's our chat. Enjoy it, or don't. Just remember whose side you want to be on during the upcoming Android upheaval. As someone who's no stranger to hosting podcasts, I'm sure my guest today can relate to the struggle of doing proper introductions. So I'm just going to save us all the embarrassment and get right to it. Shaheen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I appreciate you giving me the invite. Oh, I'm glad you accepted um, well, I figured you would cause you're a nice guy, but even still always nice not to get I got, rejected. I should have thrown a curveball in there and just really shut you down really hard. Just Could to, be. To, <laughs> <laughs> something um, different. Aaron did that. Uh, Aaron Bronstetter, like he made a Borat joke that I like failed to respond to appropriately. And it was very awkward. So <laughs> you're the queen of awkward though. So that's right up your wheelhouse, right? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I wish I could dispute that, uh, but I cannot. I really am. And like not the cute, awkward, like Zoe the Chanel type, like just the just the bad, devastating awkward. That is me. Uh, I'm working on it, but um, it's a process. I know awkward? what? Sorry. I was going to say awkward is good. And if we're going to dip into Zoe dash Chanel, I, I don't even know how to say that last name territory already this early. I feel like I'm going to be out of my depths very quickly because <laughs> I got nothing for that. There's no need, no need. We can stop right there. Like I, I feel like we've explored the Zoe de Chanel phenomenon enough for like during those five years where she was doing everything. So we'll just uh, wrap that up and jump into the thing 
that we're supposed to be talking about, which is MMA. It's been three days since UFC 256, which is like six months in MMA years. And the entire internet has had their opinions about it. Um, But I want to talk about it with you. And this podcast is not a democracy. So I guess everybody's just going to have to humor me. Uh, I'll start with the basics. I know you wrote the takeaways column for, um, for The Athletic with just some highlights of the event. And I know it's almost impossible to just pick one highlight from an event that had so much of everything. But um, now that you had a few days to sort of digest and everything, if you had to choose one storyline coming out of that event to single out, uh, what would it be? One storyline? Oh, that's Put tough. You on this. I can start if you that's want to re- think about it. I, I mean, you say this isn't a democracy. I'm about to make it a do- democracy. I'm going to go multiple storylines. For me, I don't even think that we, anybody in the world has talked about Cub Swanson in the oh last like four days. Yep. And that was probably the most fun I had watching that card outside of the main event. It is so cool to see one of those guys who has been in our lives for so long and who really had a really unfortunate injury last year, a year to the day of this card, a needless injury in an exhibition, come back and really put together a vintage performance like that. I felt so good watching Cub Swanson do that. But for my biggest takeaway, it had to be the flyweights, man. I mean, it's it's incredible, I think, what Divas and Figueredo, Figgy Smalls, Figgy Pop, whatever you want to call him, (laughs) has done over the course of this year. He's made this division feel more relevant and more important and just everything that it has since the glory days of DJ. And and that's something that I didn't think was possible, if I'm being honest. And it's, it's really, I mean, we have... For the first time, what? I can't even remember since when a flyweight fight to look forward to that I think Mm -hmm. people are all going to get very excited about now. I think that alone is an accomplishment unto itself. Dude, I shit you not. Like I had I had written down a couple uh, just in case you needed some time to think because I'm considerate. I'm cons- I'm awkward, but I am considerate. And I had written down Cub Swanson because I'm with you there because it, it, it ended up getting a little bit lost in the noise, understandably, because so much happened. But it was just such a feel good. Mo- it was a roller coaster, right? Like winning like that and then crying in the post fight and just getting to see a veteran uh, pull through like that. I'm with you. Like it really pulled on my heartstrings. And I went, uh, I would have gone with, of course, the flyweights and I Really want to touch on that. That's an, a question that I actually wanted to ask you about. But uh, Brandon Moreno specifically, just who would have thought, right? This kid was the it's last. Crazy. It's insane. The last seed on his tough season got cut by the USC, returned, and then not only got a title fight, but just to do what he did against a guy as powerful as Figueiredo to eat the shots he ate, and then to show up at the post fight press like the post fight interview with Joe Rogan all battered and bruised and bloody and say that he had a great time like <laughs> this is great <laughs> this is awesome i just uh, to me that man is just he he really came out of this event a star um not not i think we a lot of us are talking about him and not Dave Stone which I mean, Dave Stone fought having been hospitalized the night before, which is crazy. He deserves all the credit, but I don't know. I just think a lot of people wasn't weren't expecting that kind of 
display from Brandon. Um, and also Absolutely. He's, he's too fucking cute. So he's too adorable. <laughs> I can't. I just cannot. I just smile I, like the Mexican McLovin. He's just amazing. <laughs> he, uh, he has a gr- he has like a top tier nickname nickname in the sport too. The Assassin Baby or the Baby Assassin, whichever <laughs> way you want to go with it. Either are great. Both are very different and have different connotations. But I love both. <laughs> and, and the fact that both these guys did this on the quickest turnaround in UFC title yeah. history is just mind blowing. It really is. And I think I, I'm sure we'll, we'll maybe hint on it at some point, but a lot yeah. of people have been thrown out fight of the year. Is this better than Wiley Zhang? This mm-hmm. sort of thing. It, it's just crazy. And I think that the, that quick turnaround, we saw it maybe a little bit in that fifth round. And maybe that's why it's not fight of the year is those guys slowed down understandably slow. So in that fifth round a little bit, but yeah. it's just so, all, so much credit to, to those two for really unbelievable. Best fly- flyweight fight I've ever seen in my life. If I'm being honest. I think so too. I don't know. There's like, I, maybe sometimes we get a little bit of the recency bias thing. Like maybe if I sat down and analyze, but like at the top of my head, it is my favorite flyweight fight. Uh, and the the assassin baby thing is funny because he mentioned that at first, like the, they named him the baby assassin. It was like a promoter in a local show. And then the baby assassin kind of had a bit of a different connotation. Uh, <laughs> Kind of sounded like he assassin babies and he, <laughs> I mean, we've which is seen not so- what you want to do. You don't want to do that. <laughs> I feel like even for MMA, that's a bridge too far. Um, it's pretty hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you touched on the, the flight weight thing. And, and that's something I wanted to talk about. Cause here's the thing, right? I feel like we can all sort of agree that this is a, great moment for flyweights like we are talking about them and more excited about the flyweights and we've been in a long time but uh and that i feel like it's it's got a new life it's got and i think this we can all sort of agree uh with but the reasons for that uh is what i kind of like have been thinking about uh we've had the argument that one thing is Figueiredo. He's just like an exciting champion who fights in a way that I feel like is very accessible for everyone, right? Like he's just, it's, he's not as reliant on speed or on subtle things that maybe- Raw power. Just yeah, raw it's power. a lot of power. It's And he knocks people out. And of course, that's going to be more appealing, right? Uh, there's, according to UFC president Dana White, uh, the reason why the division is succeeding now is matchmaker Mick Maynard, who saved it uh, by rebuilding it. And But there's also, I feel like, the argument that um, Demetrius Johnson, like as amazing, undeniably, as he is as a fighter, and I think uh, this is another unanimous thing, uh, that the fact that he was so dominant... Uh, actually sort of worked to the detriment of the division a little bit, right? Like that it maybe yeah. wasn't as exciting to see him fight just because he was so expected to beat everyone else. So yeah, I guess that's my question. Like, why do you, uh, you sort of mentioned that you think Figueiredo was one of the reasons why, but why do you think that the flyweight division is experiencing such a such a great moment? I think Figueiredo is a big part of it, right? Because mm-hmm. for, to me, the, the, the Figueiredo era is, mm-hmm. is the most fun I've had at flyweight, really, again, since the glory days of DJ, where DJ's throwing guys up in the air and, and arm bar in there and that sort of thing. Um, I, I the, the Mick Maynard aspect of it is funny to me because y'all cut like most of the good flyweights like that's <laughs> kind of <laughs> like you cut a lot of the the more maybe more boring flyweights and I'm sure that helps any division and, and you know obviously in 2020 I think we've seen in every division across the board the amount of young talent right now in the sport is just stunning 
Yeah. Uh, and so we've really seen a lot of young, uh, exciting fighters get opportunities that maybe they wouldn't if, if guys like Formiga or even Dustin Ortiz or, you know, some of these old standouts uh, were still around. So I think that definitely plays a part of it. But it's weird because you never can quite put a finger on like why DJ didn't click, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I have no idea why DJ didn't click. And it's obvious at this point he just didn't. Like, unless you're a very much like a hardcore fan of the sport, most people just weren't thinking about DJ and weren't excited about him and, and weren't excited for his fights. And I think there definitely was like a level, like you said, of he was just so far superior mm-hmm. that it almost just made everything else feel irrelevant uh, standing next to him. And, and that that just diminishes everything. That makes it all look less valuable than it should, just the sum of its parts. Um, but it's just, a, it's a weird thing. Like if you asked 95% of MMA fans, I don't think they could tell you one person DJ has fought nonetheless beat, uh, mm-hmm. since he left the UFC. It, it's out of sight, out of mind with that guy. And yeah. I don't know what it is, but he just never clicked. He never clicked with the MMA audience as a whole. And I think just, you know, moving past him and now finding a guy like a Figueredo who, hey, maybe he doesn't speak English, but that dude is fascinating. He's yeah. out here cutting people's <laughs> hair, styling their hair, looking like a style icon with the way he dresses and acts. And you're right, the, the fighting style, it's just, he has a much more dangerous mm-hmm. looking fighting style that I think is more easily translatable to just uh, a general audience. Like if you just saw, sat a non-MMA fan down and had him watch Figueredo, I think they would have more fun than if they did the same watching DJ. So I think it's maybe all of that put together, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting that thing you mentioned about not clicking. I feel like, cause we, I, I think justifiably, you know, talk a lot about how the UFC need, needs to put more promotional weight behind more people. Like I, and we talked about this last week. I talked about it with uh, my guests and we were talking just about how like, Sometimes it feels like they rely on some stars and just don't put in the work to build others. Um, just like expect to come across a guy like with the star power of Amaz Vidal, who had been there all along. And then one yeah. day we just realized that he was cool, but he had never changed. Well, recently it's uh, debatable. <laughs> He's making some choices. Uh, but <laughs> that aside, um, you know, like I feel... So I think a lot of it, we rightfully demand from the UFC and ask uh, from the UFC to be a little, um, to expand those promotional efforts. And it did seem like they weren't that interested in putting that weight behind Demetrius Johnson. Uh, But at the same time, I'm with you in that some people, I don't know why, maybe it's they, they're not interested in it too. Demetrius Johnson doesn't seem like the kind of guy who wants to be out there, uh, you know, flaunting his fortune and making headlines. But just some people, I think just for some reason, just don't resonate. I don't know if it's charisma or just like personal magnetism or just, you know, some people just don't really have that that star power and others do. And you can't really explain why. Yeah. I also, I mean, there's probably an element of baggage that came with it too, right? Because Mm -hmm. that was sort of the narrative from the very, from Jump Street with DJ, as soon as he was champion is, is this guy's not a star. How do we Mm -hmm. make him into a star? And then he got put on a bunch of very uh, consecutively like bad pay-per-view situations in a row where he's headlining these really bad cards. And the whole week, everybody's just talking about how this guy isn't a star. Mm-hmm. And I think at a certain point that just kind of became this baggage that he had to carry. Yeah, and it's right. hard to break that once mm-hmm. you're that person, right? Like, especially in MMA where fans aren't forgiving about this sort of thing. Like once something, once you have a label, it is so hard 
to drop it in this sport. And I think that definitely hurt him as well. Yeah, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, right? right? Oh, yeah. you're not a star and that's just it. Oh, whoops. <laughs> what are we going to do about it? And you don't really explore the character in a way that you could. I feel like that to me would be the main uh, promotional flaw of the UFC in a way. Just not maybe exploring other less obvious parts of fighters and people's personalities beyond the explosive, obviously appealing types like a Conor McGregor or something. Um, if in Figueiredo, like you said, is just he's just a very interesting <laughs> human being a person who used to tame buffaloes and make sushi and cut yeah hair what and, he has like a pet uh, water buffalo or something like i want the i want to watch the 45 minute documentary on davidson figueredo like i want to know everything about this guy he just exudes oozes uh just being an interesting person like interesting things around him i, I love it uh, and, and his part of the country, like uh, from my understanding, I've never been there, but like it's common to have like buffaloes and stuff. So he he's fascinating. I, I interviewed him before he went into the UFC and he talked about like his, he used to train with his grandpa. There's like very specific wrestling style they have where he's from called Luta Marajuara. And just everything about the man was like I couldn't pick a single thing to focus on on that story so but speaking of uh the man i'm not gonna ask you your fight of the year you touched on this and i'm with you there i feel like maybe the fifth round makes this a second place to the jean gang jack uh fight but i will ask you this uh right after the fight you did mention in your column that uh, the fighter of the year for you at that point, your knee-jerk reaction was to pick Figueiredo as fighter of the year at that point. And now that a few days have passed, the dust has settled. Uh, is it still is it still Figueiredo for you? Yeah, and I think that's kind of where I've landed on it. I, it, it, I feel more, I feel better about that pick now than I did on Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it really, I mean, obviously the, it's a two horse race between him and Kevin Holland mm -hmm. and Kevin Holland has the record. The five and zero in seven months is utterly insane. Yep. And just everything that guy, I, I wrote it in the column, but he's 2020's most entertaining man in MMA. Just everything about him. I have loved this pandemic era has been really bizarre and, and the nuances of, of how these fights get made on last on short notice and all these fallouts. It's a very weird setup, but I think no one has taken advantage of that setup better than Kevin Holland. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, the quiet arena really kind of helps him out in a weird way. <laughs> I, I had I had like a, a follower. I wish I could call it, shout him out right now. I forget the name. Uh, say that Kevin Holland has some chat with you jitsu. Uh, which I thought was really clever. Uh, but you're right. Like just, he is, he's almost like baffled Jacare Souza in there just talking to him so much of like, oh man, that was a really nice shot. I had a dream about this. Like that's sort of thing like that. Jacare doesn't know how to handle that. It's, it's, it was all very weird. Uh, but I still, I still, in terms of fighter of the year, I have to ultimately land on Figueredo. Uh, I know he missed weight and he also didn't win one of his fights. It ends up a draw. But mm -hmm. to me, the, the strength of competition to be able to do that 3-0-1 in four championship fights, two of which were against Joseph Benavides, who I think we all hold in very high regard. Yeah. Um, that's incredible. And he and again, it goes back to what we were saying, where it's just this man by himself and a little bit with Brandon Moreno at the end of the year made this division feel so important and so relevant in a way that we just haven't seen. Yeah. And that is a real that's probably the biggest accomplishment of all. So for me, 
yeah, I think I still lean towards Figueredo and, and I feel good about it. I mean, it, he really is the story of the year in 2020. And I think that's what matters most when we look back on it. Yeah, I'm with you. Just uh, just thinking about it, uh, like you said, he and a lot of people use that card. Oh, but he missed weight once. I personally am not uh, among the people who hold that so heavily against fighters. Um I've never could wait in my life. I imagine it fucking sucks. And sometimes <laughs> you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not gonna nail it. Uh, but I mean, of course you have to be a professional and there's another person there who made weight. So it is disrespectful when you miss, but I, to me, that's not enough. And then you think about it, like earlier this year, he was not a champion. Then he had the first fight with Benavides, miss weight, which is insane to think about that it happened this year, but it did because 2020 Feels like is a different never ending. lifetime ago. <laughs> I, I honestly had to check. I did this small video uh, and I just had to go back and look at it because I couldn't believe it. And then you go from that and not being able to get the title and that fight ending in a headbutt and people started questioning that, getting the rematch, winning the title. Like you could have just ended, oh, I'm, I'm a champion. I'm going to stop. Then he goes, defends, and on the same night takes another fight three weeks later that's insane. Like Moreno, you can see why he would take that fight. It was the fight of a lifetime. What did he have to lose? But Figueiredo could have easily just, no, this is too soon. I'm going to sit this one out, especially knowing that he has had issues with the weight. And I think that the short turnaround was a worse problem for him because he's a guy who really uses his physicality. And it proved to be a problem for him because he got sick the night before. So to me, it's him. Even though Holland, yes, five wins this year. Um, he hogged all the good luck of 2020. That's my theory. <laughs> I like all, that theory. You're right. It all went to Kevin. We don't get any of it. And I don't know if you saw it in the countdown. He was saying, oh, I got, uh, like, I used all my bonus money on shoes and cars. <laughs> he bought a green car that he calls I a green it. mean machine. Um, uh, and that's, that's how he spent his money. And it's amazing. Like how boring is it when they say, oh, I put it towards the savings account. That's not fun. Responsibility <laughs> isn't fun. No one wants to hear about somebody being responsible. <laughs> not entertaining. I want to hear about a guy who put all his money in cars. It's uh, so, the Kevin Holland <laughs> aspect of this is so nuts. Cause it's just like, you go back to the beginning of it. The idea that this guy didn't initially get into the UFC because Dana White was turned off by his trash talk is so comical and bizarre on such a weird level of just like, what? Like, how how has that ever been a disqualifying trait for the UFC ever? Right? Like, I, I don't know that I ever remember a circumstance like that. And it's just like, what's the, what's the butterfly effect timeline of this? Is Kevin Holland just like a massive superstar in Bellator right now in a different parallel universe? It's all very weird. That would have been wild. Uh, yeah, I'm, I agree with you. Like, it's when, why now? Are, so now we're upset about uh, people who talk too much and maybe, yeah, that makes absolutely no sense. Um, yeah, but Bellator has been doing well for themselves. So maybe it would yeah. have been, <laughs> maybe it would have been interesting. Um but to close out UFC 256 um, on a sad note, because that's how I like to close things uh, on sad <laughs> notes. Um, and that was a lot of it because there was JDS. Um, that was sad. Uh, Jacare, that was sad. But the sadness I want to focus on uh, with you, Shaheen, is uh, Tony Ferguson. 
because you yeah. talked to him right before you had an a, like a longish interview with him before the fight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I the thing is, so he lost again his second loss in a row, and but I, I see some people like treating it like the man is dead or retired or done uh, when he lost two fights to two top contenders uh i'm not judging exactly the somber tone uh in which we're treating this because i feel like it did feel like witnessing the end of a cycle like right like we're quote unquote mourning less the end of ferguson's career uh, but then the idea of him being a champion and sort of fulfilling that prophecy with uh habib but i don't know like is it are we being excessively catastrophic here in the way we're, we're, we're viewing this loss? Like maybe I wonder if we're just being spoiled by the fact that we saw him winning so much for so long that two losses feel like the end of the world. Like, where do you think that this loss puts Tony Ferguson? I mean, there's definitely an element of hyperbole in a lot of the reaction. I mean, you, you can go even go back to May when he mm -hmm. lost to, to Justin Gaethje. It was like a funeral almost, like the yeah. way that people treated it. I kind of feel that though. I don't know. Like I, to me, I, I don't think the man is done. I don't think he's he's should retire tomorrow. That's that's insane to say, but it definitely did feel like the end of something. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the end of this era here at lightweight. Uh, where you had Khabib and Tony as these two figures who really dominated for long stretch. Or or really, I think probably it just all goes back to maybe I'm an idiot, maybe I'm a sucker, but <laughs> I was really holding out hope still, still that we could maybe get Ferguson Nurmagomedov if all the cards aligned. Let and that go, fight was man. That fight go. was just so important. It was such an important fight. It was yeah. the most important fight in lightweight history. And it really would have told us something. And the fact that we just didn't get it mm -hmm. at all is, is utterly depressing to me as the driver of the Tony Ferguson bandwagon for the last <laughs> seven years straight. Uh, it's, it's sad, man. I mean, I can't think of, I, I can't think of it because it hasn't happened, but the, the fact that this man won 12 fights in a row in the mm -hmm. most talent rich division in the entire sport and didn't even get one shot, mm -hmm. not one shot, had an undisputed UFC title because of politics and bad luck and really a historically unprecedented string of bad luck yep. is just, it's, it's, I, I, it blows my mind. It, it, I feel terribly for the guy. He's never going to get the, the due that he deserves. Um, and it's, it, maybe this isn't the end of Tony Ferguson. I don't think it is, but it does feel like the end of his time as a title contender. And yeah. I think that's maybe where the somberness is coming in because that's all we've known of this guy for forever, right? Is this this maniac who's coming in here and every fight he gets into trouble and every fight he figures it out and he's still there at the end of the day and the other guy's looking like, I always say this, but a defeated character sprite from Street Fighter with just blood all over his face <laughs> and all bruised up. That's who this guy is and I don't know that that's who he is anymore. Yeah. After that armbar that he escaped from, like he would have been the Tony Ferguson-iest Thing ever for him to come back with a win out of that one. I feel like that was the narrative that I guess I was expect because he seemed done. Like it seemed like the fight was done for him, and then that's when I kind of expected the toniness to kick in, and it yeah. never did. 
Yeah. That that moment, I w- I have to say, I was watching that with that was one of those where you're watching it with your fingers over your eyes because yep. I was that oh, felt like man. that was about to turn into Frank Mir versus Tim Sylvia, and I was not here for that. <laughs> I'm not trying to see that arm get snapped in half. Uh, same. That was completely. How did I don't even know? Like, how is his shoulder still attached to his body? I have no idea. That man is made of some. And you've interviewed him several times, right? Yeah. Yeah. Over the years. Yeah. And he's always uh, a very curious character. I love him, man. I've always <laughs> loved his personality. I, I'm, I'm a weirdo. I'm a dork. Like, I'm into nerdy stuff. So, like, yeah. I'm always digging any kind of random Street Fighter reference or Rocket <laughs> Power or whatever 90s shows he's pulling out of his ass. Like, I, I'm so here for it. I remember when he fought Kevin Lee in the lead up to that fight. I was in Vegas for that. There were so many moments where Kevin Lee was just left speechless and baffled by what Tony Ferguson was saying about him. Because the way he was, his trash talk was so stream of consciousness and none of it made sense, but it all kind of made sense at the end. Very Diaz-esque where there's like this overarching point that you kind of get once you reflect on it. And Kevin Lee, I just remember the whole week being so thoroughly baffled by everything that man said. And I, I was just loving it. Everybody else in the media, I just remember being like, man, this sucks. And it's just like, dude, you guys are crazy. You guys don't know how to fun, have fun because this is so much fun to me. Yeah, I remember like you were doing the story with Tony and I even asked Kevin Lee about it. Like, what was his interaction like uh, with Tony? And he was saying, and he mentioned like, he, he was just weird, like getting in my face in a weird way. I don't remember exactly the quote. I think it was for a story that you were writing. Um, yeah, yeah. With Greg, the, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's just... I don't, I'm with you. Like I'm, I like weird. Uh, I'm interested in weird. Of course, with Tony, we've seen the weird take a turn for the downright concerning uh, in sure. the past. But in general, like I just, his energy is just so different from everything else. Half the time, you're just wondering what the fuck are you doing? Like I just let go of my nutritionist. I let go and have my team, and I'm just gonna go to this like bouncy house and do flips on fire (laughs) (laughs) no tony tony what are you doing don't do this to us but i like it he keeps us on our toes yeah one of one of my dream stories forever for the last like half decade was always to like go embed myself in tony ferguson's fight camp and just really see what like this circus is just like what is this madness like to be around and like all the insane stuff he's doing up in big bear where he's kicking poles and he's throwing tires over his head and just all sorts of bizarre stuff i I always wanted to do that story and i just don't uh it's a bummer i don't know that we're gonna have that chance anymore Oh, no, we will We'll make it happen. Let's start an online campaign. All my five listeners and myself, we're going to we're going to get this going. Uh, <laughs> switching gears a bit. I wanted to talk about you for a second. Uh, I consider you to be a man of mystery, Shaheen. I don't know a lot about your background. Um, and I want to take man of mystery. That's, man of that's mystery. the you call nicest me the thing I've ever been called. And I'm calling you the man of mystery. Don't you feel bad about it? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> uh, but my first thing, like you seem like a reasonable, intelligent person. Uh, so well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I mean it. Uh, but obviously something had to go wrong for you to end up in MMA. So <laughs> at which point of your life <laughs> did things take such a terrible turn? Uh, no, like how did you, I guess, journalism, how did that start for you? Oh, man. Uh, talking about myself is probably the hardest thing for me. <laughs> I, I always struggle to feel like 
anybody cares about this stuff. I uh, care. Uh, we care. <laughs> this is a safe space. You can share. All oh, right. Uh, the safe space. I like that. Um, so how did journalism start? I mean, I feel like I was always mm-hmm. just always attracted to this from the beginning. I mean, I, gr- I remember growing up and I had a Sports Illustrated subscription from the early, like my early years. And I would get that as a seven-year-old. And I would every month, the, the first or every week I, when I would get it, I would just dive into it and not stop until I finished reading it. And, and every breakfast I had every morning, I had the sports page of the newspaper just laid out in front of me as I'm eating my cereal or whatever. And I just loved it from the beginning. I always loved it. And (laughs) I mean, I I went through, by the time I finished high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I had no idea what I was actually good at. And I I think I trade changed majors like four or five different times. At one point I was going, trying to be a lawyer. It's one time I was trying to do yeah, I, was, I did like a half a semester of law school. I did a little bit of political science. I did a little bit of music production. I was trying to be an like an audio engineer oh, for, wow. for a half a second. Uh, I was trying out all this stuff. And I think ultimately I just settled on like, okay, what can I do well? I know that I'm an okay writer. So let's try it. Let's maybe try that. Because at some point <laughs> I need to like actually pick a major. Because I was like two years in, it's like, dude, you, you can't just do vague stuff anymore. You got to pick something. So I kind of just picked that and, and, and really it, I lucked into, I think, a really interesting opportunity in MMA where there's not an, there wasn't an ingrained media when I mm-hmm. went into it. Like you, you go look at basketball or, or football or what any other sport, I would have been at the back of a very long line. Um, whereas with MMA, there was opportunity immediately. And, and so I think I really kind of lucked into the right time, right place type of situation. That's it. I, I'm I'm almost there with you. Uh, in Brazil, it's a little different because we don't. Um, you go into school, you don't pick a major in there. Like you can't really switch. I mean, you you can sort of, but it's a huge process. So usually you start with what you're gonna end up with. So like at 17, you have to figure out at 17, 18, and just stick with it. And I stuck journalism out because kind of like I went through an elimination process and I was like. Okay, I guess I like words. Uh, that's what I'm... <laughs> yeah, that's always what it comes back to. Like, okay, words, words are okay. <laughs> I guess we get along. Uh, but Lawyer Shaheen, that would have been a, an interesting alternate universe. Um, oh, I hated it. I hated it so <laughs> really? much. I, I ran, we, we randomly uh, unloaded a bunch of boxes at some point over the last like mm-hmm. six months. And I, I was going through the boxes and it was like old stuff from school, from, from college. And I found some random paper where like the teacher had like marked it up and being like, you know, you could be really, really good at this. And it's just like, whatever that life is, it seems terrible. <laughs> whatever that lawyer life, I would not have done well there. Uh, what's, the, what's the weirdest side street that you went down? Like where, what was the weirdest thing that you briefly were like, oh, I'm going to try this. Oh man. Uh, I, as a kid, like I had the marine biologist phase. Um, oh, all right. I, that was a strong one. It went on for like years. Um, but I was also more like I always wrote and I loved history. So like I actually did the our version of the SATs for both history and, and uh, journalism. And I got into both. So I was going to like be a history teacher, basically. Like that's my alternate. Now it's not looking so bad. I'm not. Well, maybe like teaching history and seeing what people do with what you teach would probably be very fucking depressing, uh, (laughs) considering (laughs) the general state of affairs. But uh, that's my alternate life. But I had a few side avenues, like stylist, because I was into fashion. That would probably be my weirdest 
alternate marine, universe. I really like the idea of, of you as a marine biologist. That's a funny one. That's hilarious. Would never. I turned out I wasn't any good at biology, so that that put a real damper on my plan. <laughs> That's maybe a small part of it. <laughs> but you said you already liked writing, right? So how uh, did you write? Like, did you have blogs and stuff? Um, did you write just for yourself? How was your relationship with with writing? No, it was it was purely through school, and mm -hmm. I, I found, especially in college, I found this was really when I kind of figured it out. Um, that like, that was just the easiest way for me to go through college mm -hmm. was I kind of would just like find classes where the teacher's requirements were just like, you know, instead of daily homework, we're just going to do four big essays for yeah. the year, that type of thing. <laughs> and I always just like slayed that. Like I killed that without really trying that hard. And that kind of like made college very easy for me. But that also was maybe a wake up call of like, okay, like it feels like you have at least some level of, of ability in this. So maybe that's something you should try to cultivate. That's awesome. You did mention like sort of being the right place at the right time with MMA, which was kind of the, the the thing with me too. But how did that come about for you? Like, did you, were you already into MMA and you looked for an opportunity there? Did the opportunity present itself? Like, how did you begin in MMA specifically? It's totally luck. It was completely luck. I, I loved MMA and mm -hmm. I I was actually one of those, to steal a phrase from our good friend, Ben Folks, one of those shit eating, shit eating wild men back in the day uh -huh. who would kind of like <laughs> stay up late for these pride cards or like try to find these bootleg streams of stuff. And I I, I was all in on that stuff from, from even in high school. And, uh, but it never really like, I never thought about doing anything like that as a, as a career. And then when I'm in college and I'm doing all this writing and this English degree, I had a random class where one of the projects was find somebody who has a job you would like and email them and interview them about uh -huh. just what that job would be. And so I, I emailed uh, someone who ran a Phoenix Suns website because I'm a big Phoenix Suns fan. And I was- What just, is you know, that? I don't know. That's <laughs> it's just... NBA basketball oh, okay. Team. Uh, <laughs> Thank we, you. We are, we are historically very, very good until the last 10 years. In the last 10 years, we have been one of the worst teams in the league, and it's the worst part of my life. And oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry I touched on <laughs> such a sore subject for you. I really didn't mean to. It's okay. Hey, we actually might. This is the first time in my adult life we might actually be good this year. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. Fingers uh, crossed. Hopefully we didn't fix it. Go ahead. <laughs> But but so I emailed this guy who ran this website and I he ended up at the end of our interview. Mm -hmm. He was he, he asked me if I wanted to be an intern for him. And so I was like, oh, dude, absolutely. Like, I would love to, to try sports writing like that always seemed cool. And I always was really into it. And so I ended up interning with him. And that was at a uh, his site was associated with a site called SB Nation, which is still around and owns MMA fighting. And eventually I ended up just on the SB Nation like news desk, which is one of those things where you like do the night shifts of like a couple hours. And if a random story comes in about anything, any sport, whatever, mm -hmm. you kind of just have to grab it and get out 100, 300, 400 quick words, something like that. And I remember doing that and I absolutely hated it. And I was, <laughs> I was terrible and I was not sure what I was doing with my life. And then uh. randomly one day, I actually remember the exact story. Um, Alistair Overeem got signed by the UFC and he was yeah. part of the Strike Force tournament at that time. And no one else on the desk knew anything about MMA at all. And so I was like, oh dude, I'll totally, I'll totally do this. This is super easy. And so I just wrote it up 20 minutes, quick sentence, easiest thing in the world, didn't even think anything of it. I, t I tell this story a lot and I don't know that he likes me telling it, but I woke up the next day and Luke Thomas, my oh. good friend Luke, Luke Thomas, ran the MMA page back then for SB Nation. Mm -hmm. I, I wake up to an email from Luke Thomas. Um, 
not the nicest email. <laughs> In fact, I would say a very nasty email. Oh, effectively no. being like, I don't know who the fuck you are, but don't fucking post anything on my page type Jesus. of stuff because he ran the, the site. And I, I, I was taken aback by that a little bit. But I was oh, like, maybe this- no, I would have <laughs> cried for like three days. Lutomus is so big. He's a big individual. He's scary. And he sounds so serious when he talks. You're, I was a kid back then, and so you so think, you hey, maybe know. this is a chance to uh, a chance to take a chance on something. So I emailed him back, like, hey, man, I'm really I'm really sorry. Didn't mean anything of it. Just you know, I was working the desk, and somebody needed this. But if I love MMA, I know a lot about it, and if you ever need anybody to help, just writing stupid news articles or whatever, I would love to get a chance to to work in MMA. And that's literally how it happened. <laughs> that was man, my entry into it. Somehow that's insane. It, that. <laughs> somehow that turned around and he actually gave me a job and then uh as, at some point in the next couple of years after that SB Nation bought MMA fighting and I just kind of like got sucked into the transition there and, and the rest is history man being nice does pay off because imagine if you had just like gotten pissed all the way off by his email and like just answered him like telling him to go fuck himself like <laughs> none of this would have happened none of it I, it would have never worked out <laughs> And you're like, oh, thank you for being a dick. Can I? I'm sorry. I'm not calling you a dick. I like Luke Thomas uh, a lot. Oh, I love the guy. I love the guy. <laughs> but he, he was definitely a dick in that email. And he would tell you that too. But like Luke Thomas has some serious dad energy. Like he can give you like a stern talking. Like that's what I get from him. Like he, he doesn't need to yell. Like if he says something assert assertively, like I'm scared of him. So <laughs> this... I'm very intimidated and I would have probably just cried for three straight days if I'd gotten that email, <laughs> even not knowing who it was. I would have been just like, I quit. This is not for me. Uh, I'm just going to go live in the mountains and befriend bears and maybe get eaten by one of them. My brain goes weird ways. Uh, that might have honestly been a better life, living in, the, living in the mountain with bears. Like that seems, that seems kind of okay right now. <laughs> In hindsight, with the knowledge I now have of how uh, life ended up after I graduated, maybe. Yeah. But interestingly enough, uh, it was kind of similar with me. I was interning at a big paper and um, just MMA was happening. <laughs> it was a thing that was going on and it needed to be written about. And I just so happened to be there and uh, enjoy it. So I ended up like sort of stumbling into it in a way, even though I liked it a lot. Like I was really into watching it at the time uh that's it was kind of like an accident for me um how did you so and then you, for from there to mma fighting how long were you in mma fighting for oh boy uh a long time i think probably seven eight years maybe jesus that is a long time and yeah like that's really i, I mean that's probably the longest job i had in my life i would imagine i think that's most most of my adult life i was there and you sort of like obviously in there had different roles too. And I think most of us kind of know you as the long form guy uh, in the MMA community. Like it really became your brand. Uh, but how long was it, you know, until you kind of figured out that that was your thing? It was a while. I think probably the first couple of years, I wasn't sure where I really fit in. And I just mm -hmm. remember I had, I had, I am so lucky, and I always say this, I am I am so obscenely lucky that I had the best mentors in the world because I'm mm -hmm. working with Luke, I'm working with Ariel, I'm working with, you know, Chuck, I'm working with all these insanely talented people every day. And it's and I remember always something Luke had said 
early on stuck with me of, of you got to find what your what your niche is find mm-hmm. what your your little corner yep. of the space is going to be i'm not an interviewer I, i'm an okay interviewer I, but if you put put a video on me and and you take a video of me interviewing somebody i don't know that that's going to be the best content and, and same with i'm not the best fight analysis like if you made me do what Luke does. Like, I'm not going to do it very well. Uh, so I, I was always just trying to figure out like, what is it that I do? What, what can I sort of make my specialty? And I just kind of stumbled into it. Honestly, I, I found a story that I really liked, which was at the time, Jonathan Brookins, who was one of the ultimate mm-hmm. fighters winners. Um, he had gone, he had quit the sport and gone on like this long exodus to India where he's like finding himself. And it was a really cool story to me and no one had touched it for a while. And so I, I got in contact with Jonathan and I ended up doing, I think weeks of interviews with him and, and I ended up putting it together. And as I was putting it together, I was like, oh, this is really like a deep enough story with enough content to where I could kind of do the stuff that I grew up reading, where it's this Gary Smith, Frank DeFord style of Sports Illustrated long forms. Um, and so I put one together and took me, it took me a couple of weeks and I didn't, I hate it now. If I go back and read that now, I think it's so absurdly bad. Uh, but it got a really good reception. And I think that sort of just made me want to do more of that and realize like, oh, that's, it's not impossible. Like mm-hmm. it's not super hard to do that because I know that one thing that I've always struggled with, and I know a lot of us in the, in the media and just probably professionally, a lot of people throughout the world kind of struggle with, especially people who have a platform, is, is uh, imposter syndrome, right? Or, or pretender yeah. syndrome. Of, yep. Or this this deep-seated fear mm-hmm. that they're going to find out that I don't deserve to have this job or I don't deserve to be here. And I, God, please don't let them find out. And yes. that's something that was crippling for me early on. And I I, I think long forms was maybe the way for me to, to get mm-hmm. over it a little bit. I still at age, I don't even know, what am I, what am I, like 32? I think I'm 32, 31, 32. <laughs> I think I still, 31, no, you're my age? I don't know. It was I, my guess. I lost count after 30. It's all, it's all downhill from here. It doesn't matter. <laughs> this year doesn't count, so we have to do the Yeah, right? Sort of. Like, we can scratch this one up. I, I still now, at age 31, 32, struggle immensely with that, and, yeah. and it's, I still have weeks at a time where I feel like I'm just waiting to get found out. Um, so, I mean, that was, that was kind of it. It was long forms were sort of my way to maybe artificially break through that Mm -hmm. to some degree to where it's like, okay, at least I have my thing that I can maybe do better than some people. That's insane for me to hear you say it. And at the same time, not insane at all. Cause, um, I've, I've talked about this before, but I have a serious case of imposter syndrome. And when, uh, I got the invite for the athletic, and I saw like that you guys are going to be there. And I'm in my mind just like, these are the best writers in MMA. And they're all amazing and confident and just like really know what they're doing. And I do not. So let's just like lay low and hope no one finds out. <laughs> <laughs> and to hear like someone like you, who I always like thought like had his shit so together. Um which is not saying that which not say that you don't have your shit together. Uh, you're doing amazing. I don't. Sweetie. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. I don't. I t- I'll tell you. You could you could ask some some of the people over at MMA Fighting. Uh, Pete C. Carroll in particular would have a story for you about this. I have some really embarrassing stories of like being petrified that stories I wrote were just terrible and like having breakdowns about it (laughs) in my house where I'm just like, I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not going to embarrass myself, but there are some bad ones. So it's, I, I definitely 
uh, still struggle with that a little bit. That's terrible, but also very comforting for me as a person <laughs> because I I deal with that every time. Like I, everything I put immediately after I submit a thing, I start like thinking of all the ways that it was wrong. <laughs> like, oh, absolutely. Of all the I, things I, I could have done differently. There is nothing worse than the feeling the the night before a big story comes out. Yeah. Like every, like I'll just stay up all night just thinking about all the ways that this is gonna, people are gonna call this bad or ways mm -hmm. I could have done it better or ways I disappointed myself. Like it's really, oh, it's a problem. No. <laughs> I wanna hug you. That is so, cause like seriously, you're just reading your things, right? They are, they, they sound confident. It's crazy to say. I don't know, like, I feel like I sound I like I sound insecure when I write, but like you no, know, you I when you were saying that earlier, I was gonna say you you project a really uh, good confidence in your writing that I think would surprise a lot of people to hear that you you were insecure about it. That's crazy. So we're all just fake. We're we're all just like <laughs> faking it basically. That, like that's all. This, that's all. <laughs> life is right. It's just all of us in the whole world just faking it and, and hoping no one finds we out. We just like have a group session, in which we all just confess. We all think we suck uh, because it's in, like the we've talked about. I talked about this before, and um, and it's like in every area of everything. It's not just writing. Uh, writing is so vulnerable. I think that it's understandable that we. Um, feel that way before something comes out and stuff. But even like, you know, I talked to Laura Sanko about it and, you know, just like people who are on camera and stuff and they all kind of feel that at some, at one point or another. And it's just, oh man, I just want to tell everyone you're doing amazing. All of you, you're all great. Don't <laughs> feel like I, you're bad at it. You're good. I've, I've thought a lot about it over the years. And I think part of it for a lot of us is just like the idea of the public platform, right? And it's yeah. just like, because you grow up idealizing these people who have this public platform and thinking that they have some such like exponentially large level of expertise or that they mm -hmm. were they they did something to earn this public platform that means that you should listen to them. And then when the shoe is flipped and you're the person with that platform, you realize that, oh, no, these are just people, too, who kind of just like <laughs> lucked into a situation. <laughs> and so like, that's it. Like, we're all just like struggling in a weird way to deal with this. Oh, absolutely. And I always think like. When I was a kid, like the idea of success sort of involves visibility, right? In a way, uh, you look at anchor people, you know, just things like that. Like, oh, this is if I'm going to be a journalist, like this is the natural path, like the career it needs to progress in a way that you become successful or a successful author. Or, and now, like to me, the worst imaginable thing in my life is becoming famous. Like this is the one thing I'm actively <laughs> working toward never happening. <laughs> I, just, I never want to be too visible I'm just very I think I'm already more visible than I'm comfortable with at this point I just like to put a lid on uh, my career path right here <laughs> just freeze it well um, I mean who knows we might not be able to ever leave our houses again so fame might true. not matter now that you mention it uh, but then again there's zoom and uh, uh, internet infamy and going viral for very weird reasons so there's that which is by the way my biggest fear in life just like one day even interviewing honestly that was like the one thing that I was always worried about like saying something so fucking dumb that it goes viral <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I feel that. I <laughs> and whenever there's a camera on my face, I'm just sure that that's going to be the moment where I say something so terrible that, uh, yeah, I disgrace It all my comes crashing family. down at that point. <laughs> House of cards that we've built. Exactly. Uh, it still can happen. Uh, still 31. So there's time for my infamy. Uh, then Jordan, our producer, can just cut this clip and make us all very famous. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about specifically, I, I mentioned it in my intro, the, the night we fought series, which, um, I think is sort of unanimously loved, uh, in the MMA world. Um, you've did a, you've done a few installments. I kind of have an idea, but I wanted you to tell the listeners just how much work goes into making that thing, that, that (laughs) mammoth piece. How is the the process of the making of of uh, the night we fought? Oh my god, it's torturous. It is. It's it's so much. It it takes months. Um, <laughs> I think the quickest turnaround we have ever done for them because I do them with my partner on yeah. these projects, Edward, who's an incredible Edward Chow. He's an incredible, incredible artist, and he does so much cool imagery for these pieces. Um, the quickest one we had ever done was for Nate Diaz uh, for his rematch with Conor McGregor, and that fight was booked so late like it was a very short notice thing where they gave us kind of like six or seven weeks tops Mm -hmm. uh that that to 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 get that together and that was probably the hardest i've ever worked on anything ever to try to get that together because six to seven weeks is just not enough time to to reach out because i think one aspect of this that people don't think about is you, you you really you end up kind of cold calling and sending out these cold yep. messages to every possible person. Yeah. And then you just hope that at least 10 to 15 to 20 will get back to you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times most of them don't because it's not you're inherently not looking to do something that they want to do. They don't yeah. want to revisit this night that they got their ass kicked by this legendary fighter and mm. all the various ways that they got their ass kicked. And let me ask you about your national embarrassment. No one wants that at all. Let me so rehash like, this terrible <laughs> night you had yeah. six years ago. You remember the worst night of your career where you lost <laughs> for the title? Like, can you, can we talk about that for 45 minutes, please? At length. <laughs> like, let's just really dig deep into that trauma. Because that's what the, like the, that's what those interviews are. They mm-hmm. end up being thirty to forty five minute interviews because I'm just basically going until they're sick of me. Because I just know that I'm going to use as mo- as much of this as possible. And so it's I'm starting from behind. I'm starting from behind the eight ball because I'm having to convince people to do something against their best interests for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those things are so challenging. But I I enjoy nothing more in in this career and in this life than once all the pieces are there and all the interviews are done, mm-hmm. just sitting down and actually putting those together as as a puzzle of just figuring out. Because at that point you're just editing. Yeah. At that point it's just a big editing job, like like a, a movie editor would do once you have once you've shot all the film. I love that. That is my favorite thing to do. But do you far. transcribe all of it yourself? <laughs> I trans so I transcribe every single word Jesus of those of those interviews. I'm if those sad. Inter- I'm sad just thinking about this. <laughs> if those interviews go an hour, I have an hour of transcription down to like nuances where if someone pauses and then says like or says you know or whatever, like you I do. add that in there. Because to me, that's really fun. I really like the personality of that. And then you can kind of make it feel conversational almost mm-hmm. between all these guys. Um, but yeah. <laughs> 
I do the same when I transcribe, by the way. I'm that person. It takes me uh, longer because I like to put every little interjection in there. Um, which is yeah, it just makes them feel more human. Yeah, and it's good for the story, really but not enjoy. for your mental health. I'm assuming. <laughs> no, How? yeah, and and actually, a lot of those got taken out um, against my will on this last one we did it for DC, and I was really disappointed by oh, that. Oh, the uh, the little uh, the yeah the personality part mm. of it, but uh, uh, you know that's neither here nor there. But I actually I owe you a debt of gratitude though because you you put me on to to a website that really helps the transcribing process. Oh, we'll transcribe. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God, that thing has saved my life so many times over the last like year and a half since you told me about that. So really, it, I'm indebted to you forever for that. Aw, SeaWorld, a positive contribution by me. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's crazy. So uh, like, because that's what I think a lot of people who don't have to do it don't realize. Like you have to track people down first, right? Like get their contact info, see what's the best way to approach them then message all of them, then get on the phone with all of them. Like that process in itself, it's just probably most of it, right? Like just yeah. the, the brunt of it. It really is. It, it really is. Once once you have everything, once I have all of the pieces of the mm-hmm. interviews, I can probably put the piece together in a span of a week. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think D, I put DC together within a span of like four days. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of getting to that point. How cool are those interviews though? Like- so interesting, right? To be transported into somebody else's memories. Like, I know it sounds super tacky, but I, I at least when I do those kinds of interviews, I just really love them. I absolutely love them. And my favorite ones are the ones that people will care the least about. Where yeah, it's true. You're catching, where it's you're catching some guy who never made it. Yep. Um, some guy like early on in the career who that's kind of like the thing he could hang his hat on of like, oh, I fought Jose Aldo mm-hmm. back then or that type of thing. Yeah. Those guys are my favorite because they're the characters. They're the people who don't have they haven't done a billion interviews. They don't have sort of this natural media training of trying to diminish stuff and make things not feel as big of a deal and, and they swear a bunch and they make out ra- outlandish claims and they always have a couple good stories from you know I, I saw him at the weigh-ins on the regional scene and he was mean mugging me and something happened I, I love those ones those are easily my favorites and and I know those are the ones that people will care the least about but to me those add the most flavor uh to the story because it's just like this person that you've never heard mm-hmm. of and will never hear of again suddenly is telling you these really great anecdotes about this hall of famer like i just love that yeah because the other is even you might have even heard the story sort of before because they've been asked about it in the past like it's not the same as digging up a gem from somebody entirely new and honestly like kind of at least i had it a lot with mma junkie like sometimes i would do this really great interview with this like regional fighter or uh even like a bellator debutante or something like that just isn't as visible and it's an amazing interview and you're like super hyped about it because you got all this amazing stuff and then you sit down to write and you're like, nobody's going to read this. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing like sitting down to write, (laughs) like spend the next 48 hours of your life working on something with that in the back of your head of like, about 10 people are going to read this. This is really not worth my time, but... (laughs) It's great. I feel like that's the cool thing about being a writer because like, no part of the process is good. <laughs> You're always just sad about things or going insane or getting very anxious. Uh, at least for me, I might be projecting a little bit here. Uh, just a tad, maybe. But that's kind of my no, it's, experience. It, it is a forever balance of balancing anxiousness and sadness and stress. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. 
It's a, I mean, realistically though, that's not far off, right? Because it is a very isolating thing. It's a very isolating endeavor that we choose to do because at the end of the day, it's just me or you or whoever and a computer and it's yeah. a blank page and nothing's going to change <laughs> unless you make it change. Unless it comes from your head, that's going to be a blank page tomorrow. It's so, daunting. It's terrible. <laughs> it's absolutely terrible. But you know, that's what we signed up for. Oh man, yes. Uh, how is your, that, that's, I'm curious, like how is your process like for fight, for fighting, look at me, for writing in general? Like I wake up super early and the first thing I do is write cause like, I feel like I don't want to get infected by the day. <laughs> oh so, yeah. At like 5.30 a.m., nothing bad has happened yet. So that's when I feel like I can get most of my writing done. Uh, but how is it for you? So prime writing hours for me are either very early morning or very mm -hmm. early or very late night. Okay. Like that, like I, I can't put anything out in the middle of the afternoon. I'm so, I, 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 I'm so easily distracted and I'm, I'm such a procrastinator. So uh, like if I, same. <laughs> if, if I, if I wake up and I'm like, okay, I have to write this piece and I don't get anything done by 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock that piece is not going to probably get started until like 5 p.m. Mm. <laughs> because at a certain point, it's just like, dude, you just need to do this. Yep. Like, it doesn't even matter anymore. <laughs> just put something down because I'll get stuck for hours of just sitting there being like, hmm, I really need this to be the perfect first sentence. Oh, man. Oh, that's not the right one. I got to delete that. I got to try a different one. And I'll just spend like three hours on the first six sentences and it's just stupid oh, I'm just, <laughs> just, oh man this is I'm, I'm relating so hard and it's the worst hours of your life right because you're not doing anything fun or productive yeah. you're, you're wasting time <laughs> you're wasting time knowing that this is just gonna make me stay up lighter and like this is just gonna make the product worse because I'm gonna be tired by the time I'm actually doing this like dude just do it uh, it's a, it's a I feel like we all do this right we're all just such procrastinators I have yet to meet a writer who is not a procrastinator to some degree. It's a very weird trait that we all share. I have, I think, I think Ben is probably uh, good about that or better than most Yeah, people. but he's like a responsible adult with kids <laughs> and like, you know, a, a mortgage and stuff. Like, <laughs> that's maybe different, right? That's absolutely how I feel about this. Cause like, I feel like he's, he, when, once I was hearing, um, Maybe he even told me that and I don't remember because he was a guest in my previous podcast. But he mentioned something about like uh, how he learned to let go. Like this is not going to be perfect, but it needs to be done. And like I can't waste too much time fussing over this and it needs to be delivered. And that's my goal in life. To be able to just finish like a thing and be like, this is not perfect, but it's as good as it's going to get and then deliver it in time. And that's hard. That's I don't what have I, that. I don't have that. I don't have that. At but all. I think that also. I think that also drives someone to be to be good at something, right? Like whatever yeah. that weird level of perfectionism is, it's probably a, a, a blessing and a curse. But it ultimately is a blessing because it does make you care about the product. I mean, we all know writers who don't really care about the product, yeah. and it shows. Um, and I think that's probably why why they are where they are, and and you know. That's just how it goes, right? Like you have to care about the end product, even if it drives you insane, which it usually does. Good on them though. Imagine how blissful. <laughs> yeah, like that sounds great. Like I want, give me that life for like a couple of days, right? I'll take 
that brain switch. Just like, I don't care about this. This needs to just be there out in the ether and I'm going to get money for this. And this is like, your name is in this person. Don't you realize it? How can you not care? Uh, these well, are aliens. I think especially when you, when you're telling someone's story and it's like a, especially like a, a, a usually like a longer piece, like that's usually a deeply personal story. Yeah. And it's just like, you can't half-ass that. Mm-hmm. Like if, if your heart's not in something, you just shouldn't do it because that's that person's life. Like they're really, we really like enter into a weird pact with athletes when we talk to them of just like, dude, I'm sharing this with you. Yeah. Like I am opening my world to you. You need to treat that responsibly. Like mm-hmm. you can't just be willy-nilly and very flippant with what I'm giving you. Like it is, I am, if I'm telling you about a suicide in my family or mm-hmm. somebody overcoming drug addiction or whatever, like you have to take that so seriously because that's that person's life. That's that person's lived experience. And it's not a small thing to them. It's probably the biggest thing in their life. So you, you just can't mess around with that. Dude, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I feel like make it the hardest, uh, just feeling the weight of that responsibility because uh, I was literally joking about this like yesterday, like how I could never be a surgeon because if I feel this way about like someone's <laughs> words and sorry, can you imagine if I had to like had someone's literal brain in my hands, I could never deal with that responsibility because I I'm with you. Like, it's just, there is a lot of responsibility that comes with writing a story. Uh, you know, it's a small part of your day, maybe, but this is going to stay there. You're telling, you know, like, like you said, this person trusted you to 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 share a part of themselves with. And I, I just take that very seriously. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I, I've had uh, everyone's had tragedies happen in their life. And if mm-hmm. I opened up to a stranger about it and then I, I read whatever their final product was and it was some half assed 400 word thing like i would feel i would feel so deeply hurt by that it's like why did right? i just do this so yeah um and i'm about to wrap it up but like one thing that i'm curious about like obviously nothing is ideal for anyone given gestures broadly everything um that's ha- <laughs> <laughs> everything that's going on trademark as uh chad dundas and and ben folks would say but i like that you said that out loud gestures broadly <laughs> gestures broadly like you'll know what i'm talking just, just this um for me in particular it's been really hard to stay creative to sh- stay inspired right like being locked yeah. in all the time and just not having even I didn't travel a lot for events, but the occasional travel, like I would just come back with so many ideas just from casual conversation and stuff like that. And we really don't get to have it anymore. So how has this, uh, this period been for you, like creatively as a writer to just like stay inspired, I guess. It's been a challenge. Mm -hmm. It's been a really big challenge because I think there's the element of it that you mentioned where it's just sitting inside all day, sitting inside all day and there's nothing to do. And the wife will come home and she'll be like, what do you want to do tonight? And it's like, well, we both know that we're just going to end up sitting here watching Great British Bake Off on Netflix and and just falling asleep. Like there's nothing else to do. We can't go anywhere. So like that (laughs) element of it is, is maddening and I think has definitely taken a toll maybe on my mental health and probably the mental health of most people in the world. Uh, over the course of this year. But then also just there's the personal element of it that affected both of us where the the June layoffs over at The Athletic, mm-hmm. I mean, we were brought to, over to that site 
not very long ago and yeah. on, uh, it, we didn't really get much of a chance over there before all of that happened. And I think that was a huge blow for all of us. Like, I think we're still trying to figure it out and recover from that. And it's tough. It's really tough. I mean, it's a small team over there now. And I think you can't, you can't, you don't have the creative freedom and, and able to move laterally mm-hmm. on a small team that you do on a big team because you're having to just cover even the little fires, right? You're having mm-hmm. to do the busy work as opposed to where last year I, I could spend an entire week working on a, a piece about Travis Fulton or whatever. Like, I can't really do that anymore yeah. uh, at the moment. So it has been tough. It has been a challenge. Um, but also, like, the thing I keep telling myself and the thing I keep coming back to is, like, dude, you you have a, a job. Like, mm-hmm. shut up. <laughs> like, just shut up and do it, right? <laughs> like, no one wants to hear you complain, so just, just do it. So th- I think that's kind of it is just... It's, it goes back to the, you're sitting down and you have a blank page in front of you and at a certain point, you got to get something on that yeah. because no one else is going to do it for you. So that's just kind of, I always have to remind myself that over the course of this very challenging year, I think. Yeah, we all do, I guess, right? Like we're in a privileged position uh, at the same, I remember like the first round of cuts because I stayed and uh, there was a bit of survivor's guilt going on, I think, Hard, among yeah. the three of us, just kind of like, okay, why us? Why did we stay? So, And at the same time, just kind of like, okay, I'm lucky enough to still have a job in a situation where, you know, a lot of people in the world don't have this. I get to like pay my rent, uh, which other people don't. So you're just kind of having to balance that idea of like, I'm privileged, but at the same time, this fucking sucks. At least that's... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. how it's that's been a, for me <laughs> i think that's a that's an articulate way to put that yeah i would agree with that I've, a lot of my sentences end with this fucking sucks so um there's that uh they're all truthful i think uh it's a cop-out but it's a truthful cop-out uh my last thing uh i kind of hate it when people ask me this but uh just for you like looking forward uh into your life and your career as a writer or whatever like do you have any any things like you super want to accomplish like do you plan on writing a book for instance or uh something like that like there's a goal that you still i don't know maybe long term or short term that you still want to achieve yeah absolutely i think there's still a lot of goals that Mm -hmm. i i would still like to to accomplish at some point and the book is probably first and foremost among that because i mean obviously I grew up reading all of these incredible mm-hmm. authors who had all of these kind of books. Like the, again, the Gary Smiths, the Frank DeFores, they wrote tons of books uh, about various things. And I think that's sort of always where I've kind of been. Like I, I feel like I'm always a long writer. Like yeah. even if you tell me to go short, like I'm going to go a little I longer can't. than you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's just a matter of finding the time though, right? Because yeah. it's like I'm sitting here writing every day of my life about this stuff when I'm done working, I'm not trying to sit in front of a computer and write. So yes. like the, the finding the time to do something like that, mm-hmm. I don't really know when I will, but that's always been a goal is, is to be able to just, I just want to have a hardcover book in front of me that I can hold that says yeah. by Shaheen Alshadi. Like that's it. Like I just want to hold this product of my labors in front of me and just have this. Uh, Cause I think that's just a very cool thing. And, and something to, to that you can't someone, no one can take that away from you. Um, so that's, that's probably the biggest one is just at some point, uh, I want to find something that I feel passionate enough about to, to write a book about it. That's awesome. You, your idea is to write fiction. Do you know already or? 
I have no idea. I, yeah. I, I really, I haven't even given it much thought because it's just never, I've never had the moment for it. I've never mm -hmm. had the time for it. I'm holding a hardcover book uh, written by Mariah Carey uh, in partnership with Michaela Angela Davis. So I have faith in you, Shaheen. If Mariah can do it, <laughs> and it's a great book, by the way. Uh, if Mariah can do it, you can do it. We're all rooting for you. <laughs> I, I didn't know that I was going to get a Mariah Carey book recommendation on this podcast, but I'm very glad that I did. This is how we roll here. We just keep our, the guests surprised. Like, that's the thing. Keep you on your toes like Tony Ferguson does uh, with MMA. <laughs> with that, uh, do you have anything that you want to plug, point our listeners to? Uh, any cool stories coming up? Uh, feel free. This is this is a safe space. Uh, plugs. Not much. I mean, follow me on Twitter at Sean Lashadi. Other than that, um, not much. I mean, I, I appreciate you inviting me on. I, as I said off air, I think it's really been fun and cool to see uh, sort of your landing spot here and that you, you, you've you been able to, to, what you've been able to do over at Fanbyte. I've really enjoyed all of it. I love the show. I love I love the columns. I'm glad the, the Fernanda previews are back. Those are my Aww. favorite. Um, and also, I just have to say that I think one of my favorite I guess we can talk about it in past tense because whatever that era of the athletic team was, it's not here anymore. But like one of my favorite parts of being part of that team for the the brief time that we were was seeing the insane growth that you went through as a writer. Because I think Aww. you even said it to me, you came onto the team wondering whether you belonged. And I think very it was very apparent to all of us very early on that like, oh, no, not only do you belong, like you're one of the best among us. And seeing you grow into a ride over the course of that year was just utterly incredible and awesome. And it was such a cool, cool experience to see. And I really hope that you can continue to to explore that and 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 feel some confidence about what you're doing because you are so damn good at this. And 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 I want you to understand how good you are because it's one of those things. I think a lot of us don't get the uh how good we are. And I think you definitely don't because you're you're one of the best in the industry at this. <laughs> why i can't i don't know how to i don't know how to follow that i'm crying this is <laughs> i'm bad at compliments it's like a social trait i do not possess but um i i'm really moved by that shane and i really appreciate it especially coming from you again i've made it no secret that i just love your work and um uh, your writing to me like not just talent but skill too um so it does mean a lot so thank you so much for that. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, thank you, everyone who's listening, for being kind enough to be here. Thank you, um, Noam Chomsky, for still being alive in 2020. Um, I guess that will do it for today's thank yous. This has been the best camp of my life. See you next week.